one of the things that I've learned in my much shorter time in politics than Tony has is that uh, life is too short to carry around all this hate and anger and baggage with you. Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Is It On? The final episode in the first season of BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast. My name is Alice Workman and this week I'm in Sydney with Mark Stefano. Mark, it has been, you know, it's the first week that politicians have off in their midwinter break, but... No one's taking a break. It has been a full-on week. Yeah, I feel like the the millennials term lit. <laughs> it inca- like it actually does. Um, it is appropriate here. I feel like Australian politics over the last week since we last sat down and recorded has been lit. Yeah, it has been lit. Although I do get a bit, I don't know, depressed, annoyed, frustrated talking about leadership speculation. So I thought I'd hit you up with a. Hashtag fun, fun fact. Fun fact. Before, I love your fun facts. Before we got into the dark, depressing world that is the leader. The leadership the, the lead, stuff. The, lead, the liberal leadership. Okay, so this week, the author of uh, the famous children's character Paddington Bear, is a guy called Michael Bond, he died. R.I.P. But did you know that Paddington Bear uh, brought down a Labor minister in the 80s? That sounds absolutely absurd. Slash <laughs> hashtag fun fact. Tell me about this fun fact about a Labor minister and batting to bear. That okay. sounds weird. Well, in 1984, the special minister of state in the Hawke government was a guy named Mick Young. He was forced to step down after he failed to declare at Adelaide Customs a large stuffed Paddington bear what? he was bringing back from England. He was trying to bring it into the country. Now, he was forced to resign. They had a full-blown inquiry about this bear um, but they didn't give the lawyer running the inquiry any power, so he, he, the, the politician uh, wasn't forced to answer any questions and, you know, he just kind of said, oh, I knew nothing about the bear, I didn't know it was in my bag. In the end, they found out it was probably an accident and he was forced to pay, I think, $1,000 in customs duties. But if you think that's weird, in the Fraser government, yeah. so earlier in the 80s, yeah. two politicians, yeah. uh, two ministers lost their jobs because they declared a TV to be black and white instead of colour. What do you mean? So when it was when they were bringing it into customs, they declared it to be black and white because the duty was less. What? So it was less money than a colour TV. That's insane. Scandal, scandal, lose your jobs. That's insane. The 80s. They are two fun facts that I've literally never heard of in my go. 10 years of nerding up with Australian politics. Whereas you now, are a veritable uh, well a well, an overflowing well of Australian political facts that are fun. <laughs> well, I'll try and bring some fun facts to, the, to this, our last episode. That's right, because my season. because my fun fact for you, Alice, this week, and to our listeners at home or if you're going for a run or if you're cleaning your house with uh, your new iPod, uh, iPhone things in your ears. What am I talking about? <laughs> no, my, my fun fact for our audience, Alice, is the fact that this is our final episode of the first season of the podcast. Mm-hmm. We've had some great memories. Julie Bishop uh, giving a death stare to Nick Ray. That was um, our producer. <gasps> that, that was, was great. And who could forget all the ridiculousness of, of Gallery Whispers. So yeah. it's and very... there was also an unaired interview with Sky Kokoschke Moore. 
Oh, well. Maybe we'll get her on for the next season. That's a little bit of a little bit of Ford promo there. So <laughs> It is a bittersweet episode, though, because it's the last for a while. Um, while you, Alice Workman, head off to Europe and visit what you say is fishing villages. What are you doing in Europe? I'm going on a road trip. But you'll be away for a couple of weeks. I'll be holding down the fort here before I head to London in late August, which is also very sad. But get in contact with us and tell us what you like about this podcast, because we're going to be sitting down and sort of discussing what we want to do for season two. Who's yeah. going to be on it? Uh, what guests? What um, what accents? What accents? Um, what segments? Yeah, so if you send me a DM with your ideas, I'll send you back the photo I just took of Mark with his hair done all emo style. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, I didn't have wax today, and um, I've decided to wear, wear a beanie. You decided and so to wax lyrical instead. <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh, oh. So for the finale, Alice, who do we have this week? Oh, well, we are going to chat to the youngest person ever elected yeah. to Australian Parliament, the former Liberal member for Longman, Wyatt Roy, who after a six-year stellar career in politics, lost his seat nearly a year ago. Isn't that funny? July 2 was when the election was held, so nearly a year ago he lost his seat. So he's had what well, I think people would agree has been the most epic gap year, gap year. ever. The most epic where he's gap year. gone to war zones and he's really, really leaned into that holiday beard, Mark. He, uh, <laughs> he's still he, got the beard. Yeah, he's still got it. <laughs> and there's a lot of he's people There's a lot of people who are getting a little bit weird about mm. White Roy online. They're saying, you know, they're feeling things about White Roy they never felt before. He's got a pretty lit Instagram. We're going to stop using that word. We're, we're too old to be using that word, Alice. Mm, okay. All right. Well, we'll chat to Wyatt Ryan in a minute, but let's kick off uh, last episode with this week's Fast Five Top Stories in Australian Politics. You need to know, Mark, what is numero uno? Numero uno, I'm Alice. I'm going to Italy. Yeah. What is numero uno? <laughs> that is so bad. <laughs> what is it in French? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alice, the uh, this week is I want to take you to the Cherry Bar at the is Casino. Yeah, it is. So at the casino last Friday night, Christopher Pine, the leader of the House of Representatives in the Australian Parliament, was with his moderate friends in the Liberal Party. um, And in the audience of people like Attorney General George Brandis, uh, the Defence Minister Maurice Payne, and even, get this, I actually found this quite surprising, Tony Abbott's sister... Fellow Liberal Christine Foster, mm. she was part of the moderates. He's now, a conservative, she's a moderate. Yeah, that's right. So so George Brannis actually calls these moderates the meeting of the black hand. Christopher Pine is giving his talk to the, um, the black hand. He is giving a barnstormer of a speech, apparently, and uh, he tells his moderates two things, which are really important. And the first one probably comes into your second of the fast five. But the first one is we're in the winner's circle and we've been winning so much, very Trumpian. And the second thing that Christopher Pine says is that gay marriage might be coming sooner than you think. Now, the speech is taped. It's a leak to Andrew Bolt. Bolt plays out the drama over two days. And then we get word earlier this week that two Liberal MPs, Trent Zimmerman and Senator Dean Smith, who we had on the podcast last week, last week yeah, last have been cooking up secretly behind closed doors a private member's bill in secret. So side note just quickly, if uh, you want to know more about that private member's bill, please log on to buzzfeed.com and read Lane Sainty, our excellent colleague's brilliant briefing on how actually gay marriage can be passed without the government support. Mm. And listen to the episode with Dean because he does talk about it. Yeah, he does talk about it as well. But by Wednesday, unnamed conservative MPs are telling newspapers that if Malcolm Turnbull does literally anything except for the plebiscite, they'll call an immediate spill that day. So basically holding the entire government to hostage over gay marriage. Pine is deeply in Barrow, and by Wednesday he <laughs> totes sends... Totes in Barrow. Totes in And he sends out a really bizarre po- apology for his comments. Um, and so really, let's reflect on that. That's a senior minister of the Australian government apologising to his colleagues for saying they'll have gay marriage sooner than you think. 
Welcome to 2017. And also, it is the most hooey celebrity thing ever to write an apology in the Notes app and take a screenshot of it <laughs> and post that to Twitter. Right? It is actually like, it's like really like... Uh, Something. Like Bella Thorne would do yeah, it after some like international Kendall Jenner has, has said something problematic. About the Pepsi ad. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry I'm for so the Pepsi sorry. ad. In a notes app. In, a, in a notes app screenshot. I hadn't so thought about cute. that. What's number two on the Fast Five in the All finale? Right, well, Fast Five finale. Well, the Chris Pine in Barrow rolls straight into number two, which is Tony Abbott 2.0. We've had Snowy Hydro 2.0. <laughs> We've had Gonski 2.0. We even had Malcolm Turnbull wearing the leather jacket 2.0 this week. But the whole point of this is that it is all gearing up for the launch of Tony 2.0. Tony Abbott has had the media playing out of his little hands this week. Mm. The Pine Story leaked on Monday. Then on Tuesday, he launched his six-point plan to win the next election called Let's Make Australia Work Again. Hashtag Mawa. (sighs) Number one, fix the parliament. Uh, reform the Senate, make it a House of Review, not a House of Rejection, he actually to end d- the gridlock and, and make has, Australia work again. He actually hasn't said what that means, though. Like, what is he going to do? He has said in the past. Well, see, this is the thing. Like, all of these points are actually things he's said before. He wants to change the way the Senate works so it's easier to override if they don't pass the bills you want. It's a how. It's actually a John Howard idea, and it means that you wouldn't have to have a double dissolution election to override the Senate. So it just changes the way the Senate works. It's a bad idea. So number one, fix the parliament. Number two, live within our means. Number three, take the pressure off power prices. Number four, make housing more affordable by scaling back immigration to migrants who make a contribution from day one because... The reason that you can't afford to buy a house, Mark, is all the migrants. They right. also, I heard they also clog up the M4. Number five, this. make Australia safe. And number six, celebrate Australia. Don't run it down. End funding for bully bureaucracies and welcome straight talking. Yeah, and also scrap straight the Human talking. Rights Commission. That's part of number six. <laughs> so, yeah, so this has all been perfectly planned by Tony Abbott. The Taliban right, who are the right faction, within, it sounds very crazy, they call themselves a Taliban. It's very bizarre, but just go with it. So the Taliban right, who are a group of people within the government on the right-wing faction, decided to leak Pine's speech to Bolt at the start of the week because the moderates were going to be out and about selling all the big spending from Gonski. So Simon Birmingham, who's a moderate, who's the education minister, and the prime minister, who's a moderate, were going to be out there making these big sales, and they thought, we don't want to do that. We don't like what they've done to Catholic schools in this funding package, a liberal in Victoria told me that the Catholics down there have been saying that they nearly had Kevin Andrews and Michael Suka crossing the floor on Gonski over the Catholic school funding, which Ooh. I find outrageous because, one, Catholic schools would have been $5.6 billion worse off mm. <laughs> under Tony Abbott. So anyway, so they're all doing this to back Tony Abbott. But as Peter Credlin said on TV this week, Tony Abbott's former chief of staff, he doesn't actually think he can be Prime Minister yeah, right. again. He doesn't actually want to be Prime Minister again. I don't believe it. So, Mark, why why is he doing it then? Yeah, but I don't believe that. I mean, Peter Credlin is saying that, and we had a discussion about this previously. Like, is that what gaslighting is? It's like it's like it's like planning something in, in someone's head and then being like, oh yeah, but I don't want that. Mm. It's like, yes, you do. That like, you've been telling you've been telling everyone for, for ages is mm. exactly what you want. Of course, Tony Abbott wants to come back. Well, if he doesn't. If he doesn't want to come back, and this is just he wants a huge... wants to pick up the pieces. Well, this is just like a burn the village down, get revenge, and make sure Labor wins the next election because the young 
conservative right-wingers that I've been talking to are absolutely loving this Abbott plan. It's being shared like crazy all over the Young Lib Facebook pages. Treasurer Scott Morrison has told colleagues this week that it was clear that Australia has, quote, collectively reached for the remote and turned down the volume on Canberra's noise. That's true. They should be putting the pressure on and saying, no, 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 you need to go. Because it's just like this whole thing won't end until either Malcolm is actually forced to quit and then they will lose the next election unless Tony is forced to quit or they just fire shots at each other and self-implode before is one they win. Can I just suggest one more election. alternative? So polls have been 53-47 for a long time. Mm. If Malcolm starts recovering ground, that's when actually it becomes Abbott can actually piss off. Yeah. And I think that's the issue is that so many people keep talking about it because of where the polls are. And none of this appetite will be there if Turnbull starts creeping back up to 50-50 in the polls. Uh, number three, number tres. I'm going I'm to make sure that every every number is European. Oof. Number tres, uh, Lee Rhiannon and the Greens. Um, it's time to talk about the Greens. We don't do it all that often on this podcast, Alice. This week was one of the most ridiculous weeks. For I'm here for the, it, though. For I the, am For the left-wing party, which has 10 seats in the Senate. Last week, if you remember, um, if you don't, well... They were negotiating with the government on Gonski. Yeah, which was, and you gave an analogy that they were playing poker and yeah, betting up. They were yep. betting up. It turned out that the whole, that all the while, while they were negotiating on Gonski, one of them, New South Wales Green Senator Lee Rhiannon, was apparently doing the dirty and hood-ratting them from the inside, sending out some leaflets trying to tell people to lobby their senators not to actually uh, negotiate on Gonski. So when they went to a vote for it in the party room, nine of them were like, yeah, we should fully negotiate on Gonski. And one of them said no. So it was 9v1. And because of the bizarro rules in the Greens, they actually decided not to go for it then. So mm. in any other party, if it, they've got a majority, that's what they do, right? The, the nine then ganged up on Rhiannon last Friday and actually signed a letter of complaint to the federal council against her. And then in a meeting this week, um, convened to solve the whole problem about Lee Rhiannon. Now, the issue with Rhiannon, she's part of the New South Wales Greens. She's seen as much more extreme, much more left-wing. And then the sympathisers of her say, well, look, she is, and she's in a time with Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders when mm. issues that she brings up, like real sort of like barnstorming left-wing ones, the ones we should be listening to, especially on our base. Well, yeah, they, and she was a member of the Communist Party. Yeah, I mean, she's got a what is she? People call her a watermelon because yeah. she's red on the inside and green, green on, on the, the outside. outside. Yeah, that's a it's a good one. Cracker. That's a good it's a cracker one. So the the actual um the the federal party decided to temporarily ban Rhiannon from the party room until a more concrete solution can be found. What a shit fight this whole thing is and uh so lee rhiannon sitting outside the party room for a bit yeah and adam bant was the only person that voted not to exclude her melbourne mp adam good bant. on you adam bant what's number four mm. okay so there's this afl player <laughs> his name is basha Huli from richmond he is from richmond who are the tigers yeah that's very good yes, the tigers now in a game that happened he knocked out a player whose name is jeb lamb he is from Carlton. Yeah. Now. Definitely knocked him out. He definitely knocked him out. 100% happened. Now, when you knock someone out, it's not allowed. No. So he got sent to the <laughs> I can't AFL. believe we've given you the fast five of this point. <laughs> he got sent to the AFL tribunal, and they were, they're the people that decide what punishment you get for breaking the rules. Yeah. Now, he was going to get four weeks, 
But then he got they knocked it down to two weeks yes. because, because his lawyers presented a character reference from a speech that Malcolm Turnbull had made yep. about how great a guy he was yep. because he does all this work in the Islamic community and he's got an academy and a football league and blah, blah, blah. And then Waleed Ali from the project nails it and pops up and says, oh, also this guy's pretty He actually good. did give a character reference. Yeah, so he gave one too. And the tribunal was like, well, th- this is what it said. <clears throat> It is very rare that we come across an example of such a fine character. And on that basis, they were gonna, they knocked it back to a two-week penalty. The guy, Bashahuli, Bashahuli. said <laughs> that the whole thing was an accident and he was going for his arm. But the umpire who was there was like, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. But Bashahuli was like, no, I'm religious. It's part of my religion. I'm a peaceful person. I would never knowingly knock someone out. Anyway, and then and then he said, oh, and striking shouldn't exist on or off the field. And I was like, well, that's a different topic anyway. But... I'm no expert on AFL. Or striking. Or striking. <laughs> but this whole thing... Sticks. Sticks. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't think that Waleed Ali or Malcolm Turnbull should be able to come in. Uh, well, see, Waleed actually knows about sports. If they got him in as like a fifth umpire, like later, weeks later, maybe that's okay. But I don't think Malcolm Turnbull should be weighing into AFL. You know, I actually think the everyday man, even the like left v right thing, take that away, right? Even the everyday man's view on this issue is that it stinks. That it's a bit, like, it's super weird. Hello, it's pod team member Lane Sainty here. Since Alice recorded this uh, really informed take on the AFL, things have changed. Bashahuli's ban has been increased back to four weeks because, surprisingly, everyone agreed with Alice. Reduced punishment for good character references is cooked. Alice wrote the script for me to say. So, there you go. Now, back to Mark for number five in the Fast Five. For the number five of the Fast Five of the finale, I want to take something that's a little bit silly and weird that we discovered this week. It sounds like a joke, but it's not. Did you see those stories around last week? There was this new Broadway adaptation of Orwell's 1984 that apparently was making audiences faint and vomit. Yep, yep. Because it was turning down... uh, Because it wasn't... Because it wasn't toning down the violence in the book. Well, it turns out the U.S. Smithsonian Society, which is like uh, historians in the U.S., posted Mm -hmm. an article about it on their Facebook page. And the image that they used, or the Facebook thumb that they used, looked very familiar to people. A whole bunch of Aussies started commenting in the the comment section, being like, guys, that's Tony Abbott. Like, that's not Big Brother. That's Tony (laughs) Abbott. It actually turns out that they did use a thumb that was a piece of street art that had been made during the time of when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister. It's a a piece from a guy named Chris Murray, and it's called uh, My Big Brother's a Mad Monk. And it wound up, because it's so good, and it's like kind of stylized to look a little bit like Big Brother and a little bit like Tony Abbott, it's, it's found its way onto a stock image library that when you actually search 1984 Big Brother, boom, <laughs> Tony Abbott's face. It's so good. So... Um, I've got down here on the script that you want to do. Fun fact. You've got another fun fact. Fun fact, Mark. Fun fact number two. Yep. Do you remember when Tony Abbott was actually on the reality television program, Big Brother? I do, only because you prompted me about it (laughs) a day ago. Okay. For anyone that doesn't remember, 2013 election rolls around. The television show Big Brother is still on TV. The people in the Big Brother house missed the whole campaign. Because they've been locked away in this house. Don't even know an election's happening. But because of Australia, where we have compulsory voting, yes, they are forced to vote. Well, they have to vote, just like everyone else. So in order for them to kind of be caught up, 
um, both uh, Kevin Rudd and Tony Abbott make these videos that they show the contestants in the Big Brother house. Oh, what a weird time. And this is so weird. And this is the video that Tony Abbott made. And he's, it's just him in a like a... Uh, in the stock standard Tony Abbott, like uh, white shirt, blue tie, his two pristine looking daughters on either side, both wearing white because for some reason that whole election campaign they wore white. Very weird. Anyway, here here is what the video is. If you want a better government, if you want a country to be all a better government in the years ahead, if you want a country to be all a change in the years ahead, so I reckon please, we've got to change. Don't forget to fill out those postal so applications. Don't forget to fill out those. You want to know about applications, and I'm the guy. If you want to know, yeah. So if you missed what he said, he said, "I'm the guy with the not bad-looking daughters," and his daughter's face is like absolutely cringe. And it's the this. I think maybe it was the last season of Big Brother, but do you remember Tim Dorman, the guy with like the giant curly hair, and then that Tully Smith or Tully someone? It was their year, and so it it cuts between him. I'm giving this speech, and the house, and the house is losing their mind. They're just like so embarrassed. But then he went on to win the election, so there we go. Yeah. But that, statistically, people in that room voted for him. That was super, a super strange, super, super strange election, the 2013 mm. one. It was. And it was like Tony Abbott did some weird stuff, and, and he was, you know, that was the year of the Fiona Scott sex appeal thing as well, remember It was that? the year that uh, Julian Assange made a parody video oh of a John Farnham God. song in a wig. Australian politics jumped the shark in 2013. Yeah. Speaking of Tony Abbott, our guest on the podcast this week was once told to shush in front of school children by Tony Abbott <laughs> while they were reading a book. Wyatt went to talk and Tony went, shh, Wyatt. <laughs> Apparently they've actually had quite a, a, quite a few like throwdowns in the party room as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did not they're get not, along. They're not big fans of each other. But, yeah, we're talking about Wyatt Roy. He is uh, 27 now. He was 20 when he got elected back in 2010. And, yes, he did get re-elected at that uh, 2013 election we just talked about. Um, he spent the last year uh, after he got booted from his Queensland seat travelling through war zones. Growing a beard. Fighting ISIS. Fighting ISIS. Working at startups. What a gap year. Yeah, what a gap year. So here is Australia's favourite, I was about to say Milky Bar Kid, Australia's favourite. <laughs> Milky Bar Kid works. Gap year kid, White Roy. Today we speak to Australia's youngest ever MP, White Roy, who after two terms in Parliament lost his seat very narrowly at the 2016 election. And it was very, very tight. But that's something we can get into uh in a moment, but for now, Mr. Roy, thank you so much for joining the podcast. You can just call me Wyatt. Well, I can just call you Wyatt now. Yeah. You know, the honourable member, the former honourable member. What have you been up to? Uh, I have been loving life, enjoying life. I want to thank uh, all my former constituents for liberating me from the public sector <laughs> and letting me go to the private sector. Uh, look, I took a big holiday. Uh, the biggest holiday I'd had before was two weeks. So uh, I went travelling around the world, which was very exciting. Uh, and then I have started as the managing director of Australia and New Zealand for a global artificial intelligence company called Affinity, which is based out of Washington, D.C. Super exciting company. Great to be working with them and uh, doing big things uh, in the real world, as they would say. Well, let's go back. Let's ste- take a step back, because the last time you hit the headlines, it was for interesting reasons. You showed up behind enemy lines in Iraq in hindsight. Was that was that a good idea? Uh, well, no. <laughs> There were some amazing photos of you with your Ray-Bans on. Yep. Uh, with, was it with the Peshmerga? You were it with... was with the Peshmerga, yeah. 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 So can you explain what you were doing? So, uh, well, a few things were happening. I have a, a good friend of mine who 
you know, he has a very unique job in northern Iraq, which I won't sort of go into the details, but he effectively works on counter-radicalisation and nation-building. Uh, and he said, you know, come and visit me. I'd actually been to Iraq before, very different as an MP, obviously, um, but uh, I've spent a lot of time and have a lot of interest in that region. He said, come out and stay with me for a few weeks uh, in Erbil, which is the capital of Kurdistan, which is um, sort of an autonomous region in, the, in northern Iraq. Um, and I said, that'd be great. You know, I went and spoke to university students, hung out with him, went to really weird nightclubs in Erbil, as you do. Uh, we um, spoke to business people and, you know, all sorts of different people in the community. One of the things I really wanted to do was visit a town called Sinjar. So a bit of history on this. Uh, Sinjar was one of the main bases or the home of the Yazidi population. And the Yazidi population effectively are facing genocide at the hands of ISIS. Some of the most, uh, you know, horrible, horrible things have been um, conducted against the Yazidi population. There is a, a mountain called uh, Mount Sinjar, which is just at this town. People might remember a few years ago, uh, it's where ISIS were doing things like you know, putting women into cages and burning them alive and you know, all these horrible things. And, and some of the uh, remaining citizens of that town had fled to this mountain to seek refuge. And it was at that point in history that really the world looked at this and said, we, we have to do something. Uh, from the Australian context, it's where we committed our forces, particularly the Air, Air Force, to uh, attack ISIS at that point. We kind of stepped up our, our um, operations. At that time, I said that we should double our refugee intake as a country and particularly focus on the most persecuted minorities, which was the Yazidi population. That was actually hugely controversial at the time. Certainly wasn't our policy to do that. Um, a lot of, you know, I had big arguments with my colleagues about that. Very proud to say we actually almost adopted that policy in whole. A lot of those colleagues probably in Queensland as well, right? Yeah, uh, well, sure, of course. Some of them in uh, North Queensland. And these Some are... of them named George Christensen. Well, you know, George sat in a party room where he agreed that we would increase the refugee intake. And uh, uh, I think that that's a great thing for our country. Uh, and I said at the time, because of our border security policies, which we can have a long debate about, that gives us the flexibility to help people who were facing genocide. So uh, I was criticised, fairly or unfairly at the time, for saying we should do that. But obviously I had a bit of a connection or uh, interest in this area. And I said to uh, Sam, let's go visit the people that I wanted to. It's been recently liberated, the town. Uh, this is Sam Coates as well, right? He's a former advisor to David Cameron, former UK Prime Minister. That's right, yeah. yeah. So former advisor to David Cameron and also to John Baird, who was the Canadian Foreign Minister. Great guy. Um, and uh, he got us in contact with the Peshmerga um, and uh, they had never really had that many people visit, as you can imagine. And uh, we went out and spent some time with them. Unfortunately, you know, we happened to be attacked by ISIS. Um you know, no one wants to be in that situation. But what's it, it, what's it like being attacked by ISIS? Well, it's a character building exercise, <laughs> I guess, is the best way of putting it. Um, it was a very serious situation. I mean, we had fifteen. It was the largest attack in several months, um, so it wasn't a small attack. And you know, there was fifteen of them, and to begin with, about five of us. They shot um, RPGs at us and fifty cal. Uh, Dushkas and you know it was a very serious um, mortar rounds a very serious event uh, luckily the Peshmerga that we were with surged and sort of pushed back uh, and then there was two coalition airstrikes that um, uh, that dealt with the issue and uh, the Peshmerga general told us the next day that uh, they effectively had suicide trucks ready to go so uh, it shows the value of what uh, the coalition forces are doing there and um, basically taking on the forces of pure evil. Um, so, uh, you know, it was interesting to see, and I think they appreciated the fact that somebody would, would see it um, for themselves. And so the Australian taxpayer didn't pay anything <laughs> for this, for this what was really being billed at the time for your gap year. Uh -huh. Well, yeah, you used the word gap year, but uh, no, I paid for it. 
Yeah, fan- okay. Um, now, you're part of the startup scene in Australia. Um, mm-hmm. You're a big proponent of it. You say that you're working for an artificial intelligence company. Yes. What is it? That sounds like really crazy sci-fi. It sounds like you're about to, you know, you're, this is like something at a Blade Runner or something. It, it, some days I feel like that, and I think I understand about 90% of what some of our staff are saying to me, but um, it's uh, it's a little more than a startup. It's a, it's a global company with more than 1,000 employees, um, but obviously started as a startup, uh, founded by a bloke who is one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Um, he has founded you know, effectively more than one multi-billion dollar company from scratch. Uh, his first company was Invisalign, which is the 3D printed embracement for uh, a replacement for braces. Um, incredible entrepreneur, amazing um, engineer and scientist, and uh, he um, he leads the company. I learn a lot from him every day. I'm learning something from Zia. <laughs> Uh, and we, you know, long story short, we use very large amounts of data and, and uh, algorithms to predict behavior. And we help some of the largest banks, insurance companies, telcos around the world better pair people in their company with customers. And by doing that, they give their customers better service, but they increase revenue by very significant margins. So you're like in, in many ways, you're selling behavioral insights exactly. to companies. Yeah, that's a really a good way of putting it. You, not only are we selling the insight, but we're literally making the connection for these companies. Uh, and by talking to people that you get along with, based on a lot of data, um, you, you have a better experience. And that company also generates a lot of revenue. And we, we actually turn this technology on again and off again intermittently, so we can exactly measure the impact that we have. So we can say to these companies, because of that, it's free to implement. We'll carry all the risk, we'll set it up, and we just take a slice of the economic benefit that we generate, which is a, a business model that is, I think, more innovative than the technology and has allowed us to grow globally very quickly. Do you hit up any of your old mates in Parliament for a bit of funding? We're actually... Uh, is, that, is, that, is that why they brought on White Roy into, uh, the, into the company? I think, I, think we, um, I, I think the company's doing okay from the funding perspective. I don't think we need uh, money, fortunately. Uh, but uh, I certainly hit them up for business advice, some of them that have had really successful business Who's careers. Who's really good at that? Who's really good within uh, the parliament? This is amazing. Like Paul Fletcher, who, as you know, was a senior exec at Optus before he was uh, now a cabinet minister. Uh, I, Paul is excellent for getting business advice from. David Coleman, who used to run 9MSN before he was at... Can I say 9MSN on this thing? Yeah, yeah. you're allowed to say Yeah, yeah, it's not the ABC. <laughs> Um, uh, so yeah, David ran nine MSN. Great for getting business advice from, and uh, you know Malcolm as well. Obviously, um, a very successful business person. So it's nice to be uh, learning, developing, growing in a different skill set. Are you talking to Malcolm? Are you? Of are course. You, how are you getting on? Like WhatsApp? Is that the is that the way yeah, you talk we, to we him? We chat every once in a while, and uh, I saw him a little while ago, and uh, saw Lucy a couple of nights ago. So it's nice to stay in contact with him. Well, okay. So you're talking about people like David Coleman and and Paul Fletcher. These are people who are quite well known as moderates within the Liberal Party. There's this really <laughs> iconic photo of you and a group of MPs walking down a hallway and on your way to spill Tony Abbott from the leadership of the of the Liberal Party and Malcolm Turnbull's sort of in the middle and it's like a, a, a photo that looks like Reservoir Dogs. And it's like, <laughs> it kind of feels as though there should be this done. I think you down, get down, more down, excited down, about down, 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 photos down. of politicians than most people would, but yep. yeah. And um, and you're one of them. You're sort of at, at the side of Malcolm Turnbull. And it's part of a group that um, Peter Credlin, the former chief of staff of Tony Abbott, calls yep. the Queen Bean Plotters mm. because you guys were gathered at the home of Peter Hendy before the spill to do the numbers at his house in Queen Bean. It must be quite a bit of an interesting time to be watching what's happening in politics right now. Uh, well, considering where you've come from as well, because you were really a crucial part of of that 
displacement of Tony Abbott from the prime ministership. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting as an you know a good adjective in some ways. I, I find it very difficult to look at global politics at the moment. Forget Australia just for a second. I mean, look at the rise of Donald Trump. Look at what's happened in the UK recently. Uh, in France, uh, I think it's a great thing that they've elected a centrist. But the idea that a few years ago, you could have said to somebody in France, you're going to elect somebody who's an ex-socialist minister who's going to start their own party and neither of the major parties will be even you know, in the final election shows how quickly politics is changing across the globe. And um, I think that we can't easily predict how the world is changing. And, and sure, I mean, I find it intellectually interesting to look at it. Uh, do I worry about the future of uh, the world, our country, communities in dealing with the change that we're seeing? Absolutely. And I think that for me personally, it's it's not a bad time to be having a break from politics. Well, what should Malcolm Turnbull do? Well, Malcolm uh, is exactly, in my mind, exactly the sort of person you want to be prime minister. He's intelligent. He's capable. He's a, he's a, you know he's, he's great at running and building things. He's a person who has a, a big vision. Uh, but you know what's happening in Australia is not unique to this country. You only got to look around the world to see uh, what that what's happening. And everyone will give Malcolm advice. I think the I feel sorry for him in some ways because it's the one job that everybody gives you advice for. Um, but if I look at what's happening in the world. What is, what is resonating is effectively an anti-establishment movement. And it's not a left-right thing. There's a big debate at the moment, people saying we need to go more to the right or more to the left. And I think that's kind of missing a bigger point. What's happening across the globe is people are sick of the establishment. Uh, in the US, you see uh, that going from the right. In the UK, you see that uh, on the left. In France, you see it from the middle. Uh, and I think that Malcolm, in many ways, is at his best when he is the anti-politician. I mean, the reason people like Malcolm, and Malcolm, for better or worse, still is the most popular politician. Politicians are unpopular, but just look at the polls. I mean, he's clearly the preferred person to run the but country. But isn't he now like the symbol of the establishment? Like, if there, if there probably wouldn't be any more established politician in the voters' minds than Malcolm Turnbull. Well, he's the prime minister. He's the prime minister. So, of course, uh, by nature, being in power um, associates you with the establishment, and that is the challenge that all incumbent governments have across the world. And everywhere across the world, incumbent governments are struggling with that. But I would say Malcolm, uh, while sure, he's the prime minister, he's not your standard politician, uh, and he is at his best when he is when he's the Malcolm Turnbull that we know and love, which is an intelligent, capable, sensible uh, person. And I think that... um, the more that he can do that, the more that the Australian people will respect him and his government and, uh, you know, ultimately the choice will come down between him and Bill Shorten in a few years' time and we'll, we'll see what happens at that point. But uh, uh, for me, uh, the public just don't want more of the same and Malcolm has every reason, every ability to be the sort of person you want running the country. So Tony Abbott this week posts a manifesto online. Yeah. It says, make... Australia work again. Oh. It's a rip-off of, of, of Donald Trump. Do you think? What do you think about Tony Abbott at the moment? Well, I it's mean... It's time for him to retire, right? You, you know, uh, I... I um, you know, Tony and I have obviously a long history together, and I have enormous respect for many of the things that he did in, in Parliament and in politics. Uh, he is normally a pretty good person. I mean, you know, that goes out and, you know, is a surf lifesaver and a, a, rural, a rural, rural fiery and a polypedal. Uh, person, but one of the things that uh, I've learned in my much shorter time in politics than Tony has is that uh, you know life is too short to carry around all this hate and anger and baggage with you. I mean, he has had the enormous honour of serving in the highest office in the land, uh, and uh, you know I'm sure when he goes home at night and reflects on the things that he's doing, there is a question about how you would be remembered and. 
you know, someone who's now out of politics, I'm just a lot happier because I'm focusing on things that are positive and creative and helping change things. And uh, it's the easiest thing in the world to, to get a headline by attacking people, certainly attacking your own side. And, um, you know, uh, Tony's done a lot of that lately. Um, how seriously people take that, I think, is a matter for them to consider. But when I look at what Tony's doing now, I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw him say something positive about anything. Yeah, so do you think that it's time for someone like him to just sort of see what's right, that writing on the wall and maybe just sort of retire and, and, and start focusing on more of those positive things that are that are happening? Well, it's up to Tony to decide what he does with his future. I would just say, um, when I reflect on my time, am I happier if I'm making a positive contribution or a negative one? I'm always happier if I'm making a positive contribution. He has an enormous ability to make a positive contribution inside or outside of the parliament, and uh, it's up to him what he does, but... Um, is it that rewarding to jump on shock talk radios and say bad things about your own side? Well, if he thinks it is, great. I, I, I don't see how that could be personally rewarding. So there are some reports this week as well that there are some moderates within the party, Trent Zimmerman and Dean Smith, who are sort of cooking up a private member's bill for marriage equality. This is something that, I mean, you and I have spoken to mm. in, about this in the past because you're, this is a passionate um, policy for you as well. Do you think the moderates should just push forward with this idea of making a, a free vote in parliament happen before the end of Parliament sort of push away from the plebiscite? Well, I mean, you're right. It's something that uh, I, I felt pretty strongly about. And I think anybody at my age or our age does feel naturally pretty strongly about this issue. It's kind of a... It's almost a prism that you view other issues through because it's kind of like a reference point of how you view the world and um, and what what, uh, what values you uphold. Um, so for me, I, I think it's we're just kind of surprised that this is an issue that the country hasn't dealt with. I think there are much bigger issues that we should be talking about as a country, but people aren't going to listen and engage until we deal with this obvious issue. And well, I think that isn't it more that this is actually a massive issue? It's not that there are other bigger issues. It's that this is a massive issue in which one of the reasons why it, it gobbles up so much time is that it's a civil rights issue? I think it's a massive issue because it hasn't been dealt with. Uh, there is no doubt it is a very important issue, um, but it's 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 one of those issues where you just kind of scratch your head and you say, why haven't we done this as a country? And for me, as a, as a liberal, uh, I, I believe in small government, right? I believe that we should get government out of our life, and I think it's a weird thing that the government regulates people out of the institution of marriage. And for conservatives, uh, they believe in long-term committed loving relationships, uh, and I look at the state celebrating marriage as a good thing, and if it recognised long-term committed loving relationships, that would be a good thing. Now, my view is not particularly bizarre. That's the view shared by David Cameron and John Key and most successful centre-right leaders across the globe have just articulated what I articulated to you. Uh, so I think that this is an issue that we kind of need to deal with. It's an issue I don't think that should be politicised, and I think it's completely reasonable to say... Uh, there is one way that marriage equality would have been law in this country today, and that's if we did have the plebiscite, and you can argue the policy or not, but do you want a, uh, marriage equality to be law? Sure. Uh, we could have had a plebiscite in February. I'm sure the population would have voted for it and the parliament would have passed a bill. The only reason that didn't happen was because Bill Shorten and the Labor Party politicised an issue that, frankly, shouldn't be politicised. And Bill has to go to bed at night and think about, is he happy politicising this issue? Now... He's made that decision. The Liberal Party has to deal with effectively Bill Shorten's politicisation of this issue. It's up to my former colleagues to decide what they do. If I was still in the Parliament, I, I said, you know, I would have crossed the floor on this issue because it was significant enough. Do you think that there are, there's a 
temperature within the party amongst the people that you know very, very well, the, your colleagues from past, from the past, that they will cross the floor on this issue? Absolutely. There are definitely people in the parliament who would cross the floor on this issue. And the great thing is that in the Liberal Party, you can. Uh, if they're in the Labor Party, they'd be expelled from the Labor Party. They wouldn't be allowed to even sit in the same room, where on our side you can. I mean, uh, you know, George Christensen, our, our good friend who doesn't share my view on this issue, crossed the floor a few weeks ago. Of course you can in the Liberal Party. So you think this idea of maybe a private member's bill that comes before the parliament, they suspend standing orders and potentially there will be some moderates, people that you know that will cross the floor? Well, it's up to my former colleagues to decide how they how they deal with that. That might be one way that they deal with this issue. You could have another party room. Um, but the reason that there is this impasse in this country is, is you know, it's Bill Shorten is playing politics with an issue that, I mean, we might wake up tomorrow and Bill might go, you know what? This is an issue that's actually above partisan politics. It's an issue above me having a win over Malcolm Turnbull today. And I'll instruct my senators in the Senate to let the Australian people have their say. And we could have marriage equality that way. Now, you know, I'll appeal to Bill Shorten's good side. Let's see whether he does that or not. But surely this is just kind of one of these issues that should be above day-to-day politics. And you want to know why people don't like the establishment across the globe. It's because of decisions like Bill made earlier this year. What's next for you? What's next for White Roy? Back, I, to, uh, back to the polls. I'm not rushing back to uh, 2019 to politics. 2019 election. Uh, I'm not rushing back to politics at the moment. I'm uh, enjoying life. Uh, um, it, you know, as I said, politics is pretty difficult across the globe at the moment. And it's uh, I'm happy to be out of it for the time being and just enjoying the liberty of having a lot of my life back. I mean, it, you know, it, it's a national sport beating up on politicians and uh, that's not going to change. Uh, but I can tell you, having had a you know, great job in the private sector and a great job in the public sector, this is pretty good. Um, the podcast itself is called Is It On? Yes. It's about the fact that there's this meme in Australian politics where it always feels like it's on, maybe if it's yeah. the Liberal Party or the Labor Party yeah. or whatever. So the question we ask every guest, yeah. is it on? Well, Albo is uh, making a lot of noise. <laughs> it's so know? funny. Anthony Albanese, mate. This he, is the he... finale of our podcast and every single Labor person we have on when we ask that question talk about the Liberal Party and every Liberal MP oh, talks about the Labor Party. I thought I was so clever. Well, I mean, um, look, Tell, I, well, ha- no, I have enormous respect for John Howard. Uh, and John Howard said this week that he, he thinks there's absolutely no uh, mood for change in the Liberal Party, and I'd agree with John Howard. And what about in the Labor Party? Uh, I think, uh, well, frankly, I think Bill Short, you know, the Labor Party is doing well despite Bill Shorten, not because of him. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm sure if Bill Shorten wasn't leader, the Labor Party would do better. What about the Greens? The uh, well, you know, I, I'm more for putting Lee Rhiannon into the leadership of the Greens. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that's maybe, a weird Maybe the thing. Green, Green Left Party, Lee Rhiannon, a membership and leadership of one. Yeah, Did exactly. We well, you, you, stranger things have happened. Uh, White Roy, thank you so much. Thanks so much, guys. I like the warmer. I like the warmer. I like Tony Abbott ignored the report. What? 
This staff has said that this nuclear submarine stuff that Tony Abbott is saying now is just pure politics to undermine Malcolm Turnbull. Gallery whispers. Well, it was Tony Abbott's government where the defence minister said you couldn't trust them to build a canoe about the Adelaide submarine builders. Gallery whispers. Australian Submarine Corporation. Yes. In Adelaide. A former staffer to Tony Abbott once told me, Mark, that he is a complete Luddite and doesn't know how to work a computer or a mobile phone and that he just used one Word document for everything and would just hit some new lines. So he had this like thousand page Word document with all his speeches in. That was great for the final, the final one. Gallery whispers. It's really funny because I feel as though that you say 
the Gallery Whispers is controversial when it just to gin up support for Gallery Whispers on social media. <laughs> I feel as though it's part of your strategy. Because <laughs> you're like, uh, people don't like the Whispers. People fucking love the Whispers. <laughs> <laughs> there were a few tweets in support of the Whispers. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> Although, you know what? Last week when we were talking about tampons and we yeah. raised the topic of tampons up the nose, very few people got in touch about that. That was Amanda Bynes. Amanda Bynes in the movie, She's the Man. A few people did say, yes, it is a very, it does work for nosebleeds. It is a sports thing. You should do it. Amanda Bynes is one of those people that would write in her notes app and then screenshot. (laughs) She 100% would. (laughs) Before we wrap things up for this, our last episode of season one, let's take a quick look at two stories that didn't get enough attention this week. Mark, what is in your bin juice? Well, it's in my bin. That's what. That's how the metaphor would work. It's what's in my bin is the fact that. Let me do it again. No, no I think it's funnier. I think it's juice. funnier. Um, so I don't, read them I don't know them. if you know Alice, but there's this thing called the Administrative Appeals Tribunal in this country, which is this you in- told me about it. Yeah, there's an independent tribunal which sort of reviews, acts as like a house of review for a lot of government decisions. Some of the stuff that they review are things like uh, freedom of information requests, disability and veterans appeals, child support arrangements, refugee applications so there's this body of like people on hand to to be a panel of review and you know the AAT is what the acronym is that's always been stacked by governments um with their political friends but because they get they control who goes on it exactly but this week was interesting because George Brandis announced the names of the new people that would be joining the AAT and all the people would be actually getting purged so some of the people that he'd be kicking off and not renewing their contracts one of them Alice yes is a guy named Justin Owen who we found out he's not just an uh, the uh senior government spinner for the National Australia Bank but he's also a lifetime member of the Sydney University Club. And Hashtag this, Sydney Uni. And that's an interesting one, right? So this Justin Owen guy who's joining the AAT on a salary that will be up, up could be up to $360,000 a year. Last year, during the uh, UK Brexit campaign, he took some time away and actually campaigned for Brexit in the Ooh, UK. So not only not only Justin Owen, we've also got Holly Hughes, who is a failed candidate for New South Wales Liberal pre-selection. She gets a job on the AAT. You've also got Nora Lamont, who's the deputy mayor of a Victorian council of Maroondah. Um, and then there's also people like Rodrigo Pintos Lopez, um, who's a barrister, whose CV includes time as the in-house counsel for the Victorian former Victorian Premier, Ted Ballew, and a consultant, Helen Morland, uh, who once worked for Tony Abbott. So all these people found their found their way onto the AAT. Oh, I've actually got one more. George Halwood, who was once thanked in, by a South Australian Liberal MP in the maiden speech for running a local Liberal branch. All these people... Sweet, sweet jobs. Here's some of the others who have found their contracts renewed. Scott Morrison's former chief of staff, Anne Brandon Barker, former Tony Abbott staffer, Helena Clarenbold, and failed Liberal Party candidate, Nick McGowan. All seven-year terms to sit on the AAT. That's why it's my binge juice, because I don't think people know much about it. But it's just a classic jobs for the boys situation. Some very white names in there. Jobs for the boys. Get your jobs out for the boys. <laughs> Uh, Alice, what is in your bin this week? Okay, Mark. Well, for my bin juice this week, I have brought in a special guest, our BuzzFeed colleague, Lane Sainty. She's going to tell us about what's happening with the United Nations. 
But first, Lane, welcome to the podcast. Alice, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here with you and Mark. Now, you're going to tell us about a law that most people in Australia don't know about. It is to do with transgender people and birth certificates. Correct. So in, in most of Australia, mm. if you're transgender and married, you can't change the sex on your birth certificate unless you get divorced. So this is it's often referred to as the, the transgender forced divorce law because it forces people to choose between either having the, the wrong sex, the sex they don't live as or identify as on their birth certificate and getting a divorce. Mm. And so this law exists in every Australian state and territory except for South Australia and the ACT. So um, there's one quite high-profile example of this, and that's Federal Green Senator Janet Rice, who's yes. married to a trans woman called Penny Wetton, who's a, a climatologist, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so they live in Victoria, and Penny's birth certificate still says male, even mm-hmm. though she's transitioned, lives as a woman. And if she wants to change it to female, her and Janet have would to have get to get divorced. divorced. Right. Yeah. Um, so what's been happening at the UN is that last week a decision was published by the UN Human Rights Committee saying that this forced divorce law is actually in violation of international human rights Ooh. law. So the UN found in a in favour of a married trans woman from New South Wales who, who wasn't identified, uh, who took the complaint to the UN in the first place, and the UN found in her favour and said to Australia, this law violates international human rights law, give this woman a female birth certificate and change the law. So what's the issue with not being able to change your birth certificate? Why is it a problem? So, so as, as you know, I've been putting in a lot of rental applications lately. You have. <laughs> and to, to do all that, I've had to get all of my ID documents in order. So, so I have multiple sources of, of ID, like most mm. people. I have a birth certificate, I have a passport, I have a licence, and all of those things have, have my correct name and my correct gender on them. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the case for, for, I imagine, yourself, for a lot of people. Um, but ID for transgender people is, is a really hard area because it, it can be quite expensive to change everything. It can be difficult to change everything. And if you have conflicting information, if you have, you know, a male sex marker on one document and a female sex marker on another document, people might treat you with suspicion. They might think you're faking your documents. They might mock you or treat you badly. And so you don't always need your birth certificate, but in some situations, people will ask you for it. Um, in other situations, you might not have something like a passport. Not everyone has a passport. If you don't have the right birth certificate, you can't get a passport. Yeah, the, well, that, that's correct. A birth certificate is, is considered a cardinal identity document yeah. in Australia. So you, so you actually need a, a birth certificate to, to get a passport. Um, but yeah, so you, so you might not have a, a passport, you might just have your birth certificate. And if you need to, you know, make up 100 ID points for a house application or a job, mm. you might need to, to put in this piece of paper, which has a different sex marker to the license mm. that you've also put in. And, you know, it, it's bureaucratic, it's annoying, and it can also just out people, which can be quite dangerous in, mm. in you know, the most extreme situations. Yeah. Okay. Some of your reports have mentioned marriage equality. What does the forced transgender divorce law have to do with marriage equality? So... In its submissions to to the UN, Mm. um, the Australian government argued that this forced divorce law is actually necessary to to uphold our ban on same-sex marriage. Well, that is a long bow. Well, yeah, so the thinking behind this is, um, again, to to go back to to Janet Rice and Penny Wetton and and use them as an example, if Penny changed her birth certificate to read female and and Janet and Penny stay married, then they're legally a same-sex married couple. Right. right. Um, But there's a whole lot of other really complicated stuff here, and and that is that... um, you can actually change the sex on your passport if you're a married trans person in Australia, and that apparently doesn't affect the Marriage Act. 
And then, and then, of course, this this trans-force divorce law doesn't exist in South Australia or the ACT, so there are technically married same-sex couples there. And so what the UN ended up saying to Australia is, um, mate, this is really unclear. <laughs> um, you haven't explained why this birth certificate law needs to exist mm. to, to uphold the Marriage Act. Um, and so a lot of advocates have suggested that the actual easiest legislative fix here is to introduce marriage equality, and then two people what? of any gender can get married marriage to one equality? another and no one has what? to divorce. Well, I know. Wait, but if the now the UN has said that uh, that what Australian has done is unconstitutional and this woman can change the gender on her birth certificate, but does the Australian government have to listen to the UN or can the UN make this declaration and Australia just kind of ignore it? Yeah. Like uh, they do with asylum seekers in detention centers. Yes. Yeah, so as we well know from Australia's uh, offshore detention regime, mm. that the government doesn't have to change the law just because the UN right. tells them that it's in violation of international human rights law. That is not a thing they have to do. Um, so what is happening is that the government's working on a response to the UN, which is due in December. Um, I asked all the states that still have this forced divorce law what their response is. Mm. Some were kind of like, oh, we're not going to change anything. Some were like, oh, we've got this review process underway. None of them, aside from Victoria, which previously tried to change it and was unsuccessful in the upper house, none of the other states seem to really um, jump at the opportunities. So the too long don't read is uh, if we past marriage equality, then it would fix this problem. That's correct, yeah. <laughs> well, isn't that a positive way to end the podcast, Mike? That was uh, the best binge juice I've ever heard. Yeah, thanks, Lane. It was the most juicy of binge juices because I feel as though that we educated people on something they may not have heard about. Yeah. Especially if Lane Sainty wasn't reporting on it, no one would have heard about it. Yeah, it stinks. It should change. It, sh- it does. It stinks as well. It's yeah. A, it's a bin juice. Well, that's it. That's it. it. That's it. That's, that's it for that's that season. The, this is it for the season one of Is It On? Uh, Mark, thank you. Thank you so much, Alice Aww, Workman. I'm going to miss you. you. I'm only going away for four weeks. Can you make sure that you change um, your background on your iPhone to me and Nick smiling? <laughs> so every time you open your phone, it'll be like, oh. Yeah, okay. We'll do, I'll I do that miss, next. I miss okay. it. All right. Well, we, thank you to Nicholas Ray, our trusty producer and recorder, and of course, Lane, who not only did Bin Juice with us this week, but always helps out when we record in Canberra and laughs at our jokes when we're feeling down, yep. which is always very helpful. Thank you. Uh, to Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes, and the whole pod team, you can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on and subscribe on iTunes uh, and listen to like over the four weeks we're away, listen to the old episodes. Mm, Just mm. catch up. There's some yep. corkers in there. Yeah. Julie Bishop, Penny Wong. Yeah. Don't feel time. like just because we're taking a break from the podcast, you can't annoy us online. Yeah. You can annoy us online. Get in our menchies. Yeah, get in there. Send us some DMs of some wisps. Yes, Maybe. some wisps. Are we calling them that now? <laughs> Maybe you could you could just tweet out some wisps while I'm away. I'll tweet out Keep some wisps. Keep the people wisps. interested. Some GWs. Yeah. <laughs> um, finally, Mark, I've got to ask, the last time, season one, with all the craziness happening mm, at the moment, mm. what do you reckon? Is it on? Someone told me that this week... I read something. Maybe it was a reply to one of my tweets. It was like, <laughs> it was like the tweets now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This question for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like we live in a Schrodinger's box of on when it's always on and it's always not on. And I think that at the end of this season is the best way I can answer that question. It's always on, but it's always not on. It's is, is it- the possibility of both options concurrently are true. And that is the problem of the paradox of Australian politics. Does it is it more on than it's been this whole season? Again, with this week with Abbott launching equal chances, his equal chances of it being both on and not on. <laughs> but at the same time, here's here's what I will say: 
Tony Abbott has now five weeks before going back, coming back to Parliament to cause as much problems for Malcolm Turnbull as possible. And if it's not Malcolm Turnbull, sorry, sorry, if it's not Tony Abbott who's going to be the next Prime Minister, who is it? And whoever it is, is not as popular as Malcolm Turnbull. So why would they change? They would be changing on policy grounds. Will so, Lee Rhiannon be the next leader of the Greens? <laughs> of the New South Wales Greens caucus, yes. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so thank much you for listening. Thank you so much. We will be back with you in a few short weeks. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. <laughs>